We are It's More Than Just a Chant. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. All right, episode number 39 of Lion Legacy and Ross. Normally, we talk Penn State football, Mm -hmm. a little bit of Penn State basketball. Mm -hmm. We're actually going to talk about a sport that we have never spoken about and learned a little bit about as well. True. In this episode. Yeah. So the lead up is we had Gail Ramsey on. Gail's a Penn State alum. As I said to Jared, she's like the Coach K of women's collegiate squash. I'm not going to give it all away now. But you'll hear in the intro all the accolades. It's quite exciting. But before we get into Gail and her background, again, we're talking racket sports here. So, Jared, fun fact, when you were in high school, right? Junior junior and senior in high school, yep. Junior and senior in high school. Remember Jared, for those that have been paying attention all along, Jared's from Queens, New York. And those of you that follow tennis will know that every summer we have the U.S. Open in Flushing, Queens, New York. And, Jared, tell us what you did I had the honor to do a privilege to do when you were a junior and senior in high school for the U S open. Yeah, it was, it was pretty much my first job. One summer I ended up trying out to be a, a ball boy at the U S open. I remember going to tryouts and I think there were 300, 400, 500, maybe people trying out and doing all these drills, running, throwing, showing your, you know, you have an idea of tennis knowledge cause you need to know what's going on in the court. And, uh, right. Really grateful and fortunate to have been chosen, which was just amazing. You end up getting paid even better. Right? Really? I thought it was volunteer. I didn't know you. No, I got paid. I got also, All some, right. you know, free food. And sure. You got some probably some gear, right? Some like I, some some polo shirts and, and a hat or something. This is how long ago it was. Fila was the sponsor. OK. Yeah. Fila throwback. Fila throwback. Yep. Yeah. Fila was was the sponsor. I had a couple pairs of short shorts on uh-huh. and uh yeah every day i would just squat kneel and when that ball hit that net i would just like a robot just... run as fast as i could pick up the ball and get it back into position it was an amazing experience i had a chance to do the 99 men's final between andre agassi and todd martin cool i remember just looking around and being like wow, there's a lot of people here and there's uh-huh. even a lot more people at home watching this. It was like, do not trip. Do not trip. <laughs> Whatever you do, do not fall flat on your face because the rule of being a ball person is you never want to be noticed. If you're noticed, right. it's because yeah. you did something wrong. So That's uh, right. luckily I didn't trip, but it was uh, it was an amazing experience. Very cool. And uh, speaking my- of ragged sports, yeah. You have a little bit of, I would say, of a background in, in racket sports as well, right? Well, not I wouldn't call it a background. You're being way too generous there. No, but in speaking with, again, speaking with Gail, we're thinking about racket sports. We talk about, you think about classes at Penn State, right? And you've got your major classes. You've got your general education classes. We sometimes forget, right? You have to do a, like a phys ed credit. What th- When we were there, what, three credits, five credits, whatever it was. And so I decided to challenge myself and say, all right, for one of my phys ed courses, I'm going to do, I'm going to take a class of a sport that I've never done before. And so I signed up for racquetball. 
never played racquetball. I was like, I'm going to go and learn. I'm going to see how I do and have some fun with it. And it was great. I had the class was at rec hall. I think they had some racket. Yeah, they did. There. They did. Yeah. I, I know, I'm almost certain it was at rec hall. I don't think it was a white building. And I learned the basics of the game. I wasn't that good. I didn't realize that the final grade was based on how you performed in like a final tournament. So I didn't do very well in the tournament because there were some other kids that had played before. Wait, I think did I you came, get an A? I, I don't remember. I may have gotten like a B, but only as a function of I got knocked out in like the second round of the final tournament. Again, you're really jogging my memory on that. But it was fun. I had a blast with it. And I think racquetball courts are still hard to come by right i mean they're not everywhere unless you belong to a gym in like your uh, local area maybe you can find one but no, it was fun I, I enjoyed it and and that ended up being a good time and i learned something new now we need to to get on uh a court and play some squash uh, yeah really. uh, yeah squash there you go so we learned again as we alluded to a moment ago gail ramsey so she's been coaching at Princeton for the last almost 30 years. And you wait till you hear, again, as I mentioned before, wait till you hear these accomplishments out of control. She's done it all. Just a really, really tremendous uh, resume that she has. Before we jump in, Ross, yes. I want to do, do want to give a shout out to Professor O'Toole in the podcasting class. She actually mentioned Gail Ramsey to us and just goes to we the fact that we want to get guests from all walks of life and from all people. So continue to bring names and people forward to us. Absolutely. All right. And with that, we're going to grab our squash rackets, Jared, and we're going to hit the court with Gail Ramsey. All right. Let's welcome Gail Ramsey, a 1980 graduate with a degree in education. Ross, simply put, Gail is the queen of squash. <laughs> We can spend the entire podcast just listing our accolades, but here's a few. In her 28 years as the head coach of Princeton, she led the women's team to five Howe Cup team national titles and four Ivy League titles. She has coached two individuals to four national championships. While at Penn State, she was the first person, yes, first person, to win four national individual collegiate championships and she later went on to achieve a number two ranking in the U.S. on the professional tour and represented the U.S. at the World Team Championships on several occasions. I'm not done yet. In 2002, <laughs> the Women's Intercollegiate National Championship was renamed the Ramsey Cup, where that came from. And next month, Gail will be inducted in the U.S. Squash Hall of Fame. Simply amazing. First of all, congratulations and Welcome to Lion Legacy, Gal. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, Ross. It's a it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for uh, thinking of me and including me in your uh, great project podcasts. Gail, absolutely an honor to have you on with us on Lion Legacy. When Jared told me you were coming on, he mentioned squash. I, I had a pause. I will admit I don't know a ton about squash. I'm generally familiar with racquetball. So just give us a little bit of background. What's the difference between the two and uh, help us to understand the, the differences there? Yeah, good question. A lot of people don't know that much about squash. Yeah, the court is different, the ball's different, and the racket's different. Similar, but different. The squash court is about 32 feet long. Racquetball is 40. Squash is 21 feet wide. Racquetball is 20. The racquetball court is really open, all surfaces, anything goes, ceiling, sidewall, front wall, back wall. 
in squash, we have limit uh, boundaries that limit the how high you can hit and how wide and high you can hit. The front wall is 21 feet. There's also a 19 inch area from the floor up 19 inches that's called the tin because it was probably made of tin originally. And that's like a, a net, the net in tennis, the tennis net. You hit it into the tin, you lose the point. The front wall, 21 feet, back wall, 14. And there's a diagonal line from the 21 to the 14 foot mark on the back. So that area on that line and above is out of bounds. So there's a lot more restraints for hitting the ball. The squash ball is very soft, not very soft, but squishy, squash, squishy, and, and dead bounce. And the racquetball is quite lively. So it, I think if you describe the sport wise, there's a lot longer rallies in squash because the ball's slower and the court's smaller. And there's uh, boundaries make it a little bit more challenging, but it's still, the rallies tend to be much longer than a racquetball. I think I heard like a pro racquetball rally when I was coaching racquetball in New York City in, in, in the 80s was 1.8 hits a rally. And the squash average rally is roughly between seven or eight hits a rally. So it's, it's, um, it's quite a different sport. Yeah, quite a difference sports. for sure. And, and how did you get into to the sport of squash? I know you were on the women's varsity tennis team at Penn State, right? Yeah, I was a recruited athlete back in the beginning days. Actually, my dad went to Penn State before he went into the service and played tennis there. But then he went to sophomore, started playing, finished his degree and, fin- and played some squash there. And then we joined a club once he got his family started and got us started. And we basically played tennis in the summer and squash in the winter. And he got us started and my mom got us, got me to the tournaments and made it happen. So that's how my squash started up in the 70s. And what makes, what makes a good squash player? Like, what do you look for or when you're recruiting or like, what, what are the kind of the attributes of a solid uh, squash athlete? I think the elements of making a good player would be, they tend to be quite fit endurance wise and, there's strong lower body, good core, and flexibility is important. There's a lot of lunging and and also the mental toughness side. It's uh, You're in a pretty close space and you're like vying for the same spot on the court constantly. And you're trying to, but you're also obligated to get out of the way. You could be missed by a racket by inches every rally or several times in a rally. Mentally, it's a very demanding uh, sport, but physically and physically as well. Just like any sport at the top levels, it's very all elements come into play. R- Ross r- mentioned what makes a good <laughs> squash player and kind of recruiting. Where do you end up going to find a squash player, squash athletes? It's a little bit different than a football player, right? Where you go to the high schools, there's a lot of media attention. Where are you seeking these squash players out? Yeah, there are high school squash that, and it's a little limited. It's often in private prep schools where it's really started, I think, for the U in the U.S. And so there's that market, but also there's a U.S. organization, the United States Squash Racket Organization, the one that's inducting me in the Hall of Fame. They have uh, devised a very extensive junior development program, and they they basically run tournaments that allow you to see the top. 32, the next 32, the next 32 in the country. So you can you really, the rankings are really a great place to start for recruiting process. And those tournaments highlight those athletes. So it's also quite international. So it's, it's a, a big sport around the world. It, there's over 50 some countries that play pretty much anywhere that, that England colonized. And a lot of interest internationally these last decade for the women and probably a little bit longer for the men. 
Yeah, we'll certainly get into a little bit more of the international aspect. I do want to hit on your historic coaching career and dive a little bit into that. Can you talk a little bit about, from your perspective, what's been the best part about being a coach? And are there a few highlights you want to share from your journey? Sure. I I think what I really love about coaching is the people and working with the athletes and helping them grow as players and competitors, but also as people. So I think that part is really, I really value that, that element of my job. And there's so many different parts of my job. It's really interesting, actually. I I love also trying to work on um, getting the individual athlete into a a really positive team environment. That's really positive and, and, uh, really good dynamics you have to sometimes individual players have to shift transition into this like team oriented sport which college colleges it's very teamy and very sacrifice for each other and i think that element for the individual athlete in squash and tennis and probably golf are very similar like you you do have to give a little piece of your own development up for at least a, a period of time to really invest in your teammates and and bring them along with you so i think that always makes me it's a big challenge it's sometimes tough but i i enjoy it so and any highlights of my career i mean i guess on the same line there's 1999 which sounds like a long time ago doesn't it yeah i had a player who was had a slight had a serious team violation social conduct issue so i had to like bench her for a week like i you know she was you know banned from practice for a week and it was right as we were playing around a, a big league match that you know, just like any league like 10 or whatever you want to win that league title so we were playing harvard and that was the we were one and two in the league and i played we played without or we didn't we actually lost a close five four match but so we lost the league my player was on the bench she ended up coming back from the, her exile and yeah, we had, were a week away from the national championship, which uh, we have to get our lineup in a deadline. I couldn't get her challenged into the lineup, so I, ca- I could take her at 10, and if somebody drops out, I can put her in at 9. But we play 9 people, so you have to win 5 of 9 matches. So she was still on the bench, but traveled with us. And my captain, I had two captains, and they came to talk to me about some things. And my number 9 had lost badly to this number 9 from Harvard, having 4, and I'm like, come on. And I was like, it's okay. You can do it this time. It's a different day. You sorted some things out. Come on. And she goes, you know, I really don't think I can. I think we should put the other person in who has been exiled from, from the lineup for her poor judgment. I think, you know, not many people would say, hey, I'll give up my spot because it'll make us better. That always sticks with me, that little kind of scenario of putting a team before yourself. Certainly. Yeah, that's a great example of selflessness and and being on a, a solid team. And I'm sure that was driven by the culture that you're uh, leading there. First, one more accolade, by the way. And Gail, correct me if I'm wrong. I looked at your season by season while you're at Princeton, and I couldn't find a losing season on there. Yeah, no losing season. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> There you go. That was another, just another another accolade for you. No losing seasons in, what was that, 28 years at Princeton. So again, another congratulations. Thank you. But I also wanted to ask you, so I guess that your story was another was a good segue to the next question. How do you describe your coaching style? And also, maybe I'll make it a two-parter. Have you found your coaching style to have evolved where you're coaching a little bit differently now than, say, when you started at Princeton some years ago? I 
think about my coaching style as a uh, athlete-centered style of coaching. And it's not just about the athlete, but I, I think I feel, I, I find that it's been, as I evolved, um, I've been more patient and more thoughtful in my approach to coaching and teaching. And by having a little bit, taking more time to get to know my athletes before we start to do any major changing changes or so every, there's like, everybody's different. Everybody has different strengths and weeks. So I have to keep it pretty individual as much as I can. So once I can get to understand how they learn, the best way they take in information, how they communicate me with me and how I can communicate with them in the best way, best way possible. I find that I start with little tiny changes, like little tiny changes. And then we can progress to when I find out they can, what they can handle, we can lift it up or bring it back a little bit. But I think when initially I was pretty much, oh, let's change that grip. That that grip is, we can't play squash with that grip. And I think, you know, that's a big change and it comes on fast and hard. And I don't know, my, I hadn't known my athletes well enough to know what they're capable of doing. So that's my general approach. And it has definitely evolved to maybe more patient and more inclusive. I mean, definitely not a democracy or anything in here, but it's, I definitely give enough, give them enough room to give me some good feedback and info. You're a player's coach. It sounds like everyone wants to be part of a team where the, the coach, obviously there's some discipline there, but not every day kind of barking orders or, or yelling, but really trying to understand the athlete as a human being and bringing that athlete to the, the next level, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's been actually really, it's really has, as I got, as I get older and also, but I think, I think it's really helped really um, advance my athletes in their skill levels and their, you know, understanding of the game. So I think it's okay. been a good evolution for me. Yeah. Get, sure. on, get on a better page. Sure seems that way. And over the 28 years, you've obviously been doing something right because it's championship after championship and winning season after winning season. So your coaching style certainly does work, which is fantastic. We also have a, a great partnership with the Daily Collegian. Every episode, we have a student submit a question. This week, Jake Brown, a senior in the business school, asks the following. He says, with squash being a varsity sport at Princeton and someone who has been around collegiate athletics, I'm curious about your perspective on name, image, and likeness, also known as NIL. And for the listener out there, so everyone knows, we're referring to now as student athletes have the opportunity to earn money, which is very, very recent. Yeah. Gosh, I don't know. If I, I don't think I'll get in trouble, but I know I think it's good. I, I think in in our sport, it's the lines are blurred. What is an amateur? What what's that? What is that? Like I, I'm almost think like an amateur is somebody who doesn't play full time on the pro tour, even if they don't win money. If they're playing full time or ranked top ten in the world, or maybe that's more a way to describe what a professional is. But I think in most sports, and particularly for women, there's not that much money. There's not much money for them to win as professionals. And I, and I do think that athletes do an incredible amount of work for the universities. Some sports are obviously prospering more than other sports from, from the athletes' participation. But I, I feel for them to have another, to be a fencing player and for them to have a scholarship, but also need money to spend, 
and they need to find it's impossible to do a job and also be a, a varsity athlete at Princeton for sure. But, you know, at a school like Penn State or anywhere, it's it's really a tough two, three balls, four balls to juggle, having a social life and academic and athletic and job on the side. I know that education is quite an expensive part of their their opportunity. I think it's a good move in my mind, and but I think it's really a very blurry line and it's really hard to... Uh, define exactly what's what is a professional so speaking of professionals because that's a good segue into the next question i took a look at the professional squash association world tour site and they list out their top 20 rankings for the professionals and interesting as of right now as of recording this i should say yeah there are on the women's side two americans in the top 10 and total of three in the top 20 and there are no americans in the top 20 on the men's side which is telling. So the, your top players in the world are all non-Americans, if you will. So yeah. I guess the, the question is, what needs to happen to grow the sports popularity here in the United States? Yeah, again, that's a great question. If we had an answer, it would we'd probably be a little bit um, more, have a little more growth. But I, I do think, I think visibility is a big thing. Like it's not that much of a public sport. It's um, often in the private club situation or in centers, even fitness centers that are actually quite costly to join. So it's limit, it limits its participants in that way. So I think if, I think we need to have more exposure on the, you know, how tennis had tennis courts at public parks to have outdoor squash courts or to have some sort of ability for the general public to have access to it. So that's a big thing. And U.S. squash is really working hard to promote the game and to find, to bring more people from all different areas of the country and different economic situations into the sport. And and the more numbers you have, the more athletic ability you have. So I think it's competitive, men's and women's basketball and even tennis and golf and um, football, those sports, baseball, they take a lot of athletes, soccer. It's a very competitive athletic world out there. So it's it would take a really good get into the public school system on the elementary high school level, as well as the college. And also the Olympics would be a great boost, I think, for the U.S. and for the World Squash Association to to get us into the Olympic. And it's been a constant drive and lots of time and effort and money has been put into it, but it's been really tough. But hopefully the next one could produce an opportunity. Absolutely. And then yeah. you're familiar with the World Tour, right? You were on the tour when you were playing. Yeah. And so, so I guess just for our education, are the athletes, the professionals able to make like good money from touring or is it something where, you know, on the side, they're supplementing it with other professions and other day jobs? Yeah. Uh, a little bit of what country you're from. So if you're from you're number one in the world, from Egypt, you'll probably have a huge homeland group supporting you sponsorship wise. And most money will come from sponsorship, I think, unless you win every single tournament. So I have to say, I could throw out a number like 500,000 for a number one ranked player, male player in the world, and maybe a little less, maybe less for the women, although it could be somewhat some parody in there. But I think once you get to five, it changes, it's jumped down, 10, it jumps down, 20, it's most likely you're coaching like 50% of the time and training 50% of the time, playing leagues for money and yeah, it's tough. It's not like tennis where the top 100 could make a decent living. Things relative what's de decent, but in some countries, it's very, it's not that much money in it. 
overall. But um, hopefully that'll change as the sport grows and more popularity and you know more viewership, more sponsorship dollars, and yeah, you know, kind exactly. of, uh, every, everything rises from there. I do want to also go back to college athletics. As you probably know, in June, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Great achievement, great anniversary as well. What are some of the key changes in women's sports that you've seen since your time at Penn State? And then what are the, some of the areas that we still need to work on? Yeah. Well, it's just, I have to say that I'm not sure where we'd be without Title IX. It's been really great for the women women in general, but women athletics as college opportunities, scholarships have, have grown and more, op- more teams, more universities are sponsoring teams for women. And I think that those things are the most, most obvious. This gives also the more um, visibility we have, like we have the WNBA and um, the women's, women's soccer league and the world cup and the Olympics where that type of visibility has really helped grow this grow the sport, but financially, I think they've also been able to improve their standing. And um, and I think Title IX has been a real push. Like tennis, for example, is a lot of equal money there. Squash actually is a joint organization, and they are equal prize money. So I think I think Title IX has, even though it's a world event, has drifted into the international kind of parity for men and women. I guess I think, you know, there's been more money in coaching for women, I think, with Title IX and obviously business and closer, better pay. It's not equal, I don't think. I definitely understand certain issues that that involve, but I'm disappointed that it's not better. But I'm also disappointed that there aren't as many women in coaching in those spots for coaching women's team, at least, and virtually no women coaching men's teams. I, I feel like that is a piece that I think women are capable of coaching men. And it's interesting that it's it's tough. It is a kind of a man's world, the athletic and the women are showing uh, showing their strength, but it's a slow process, but I think it's overall, it's been, you know, it's been moving forward sort of slow, but in a good, in a positive direction for sure. Yeah, I think the 50th anniversary, I think we can celebrate where we've come from and how yeah. far we've come, but also, what we still need to do in the future to, to progress. And I think this coming June is the perfect time to really hit the pause button and look back, but also make sure we're looking forward as well. Yeah. One last question before we talk about Penn State, and that is the U.S. Squash Hall of Fame, which is coming up next month. And what a, a tremendous honor, right, among yes. all the other accolades that you've had that we discussed. But, you know, usually when you talk about the Hall of Fame, you also talk about someone's legacy. Have you given any thought to what your legacy, you know, what you want your legacy to be? Well, I haven't given that much thought, but lately I've been thinking about it. <laughs> You're going to have to do a speech, I imagine, at some point. I I, yes, absolutely. That's coming up shortly. Yeah, I, I guess how do I want to be remembered, I, I think. Obviously, I, I want to be remembered that about my my competitiveness and my competitive career and what I brought to it with my drive and um, determination and also my the respect I have for the game because it's a complicated game and it's, it's as any sport you can always find a way around certain fringes of how to play and I've always wanted to be uh, you know 
be a fair player and a good sports uh, person. So I would like that to be part of it. And also my commitment to growing the game and, and sharing my knowledge and coaching and teaching, teaching the sport that has done brought me so much joy and uh, success. Fantastic. Congratulations again on, on such a great achievement. And, and Jared, now, before, hold yeah, on, Jared, before ahead. we move on, Gail, I also realized a very simple question we forgot to ask. Do you still play? Like, do you still find some time? I know you're, you're probably super busy with coaching, but yeah. do you, do you still find some time to play squash? Yeah, no, I haven't played competitively since, yeah, my, what, mid to late thirties. So I, I do still get on court with my team and train them. I limit my, how many parts of the court I move at one time. So I might have one box here and one box there and I might go two boxes, but it's, yeah, I don't do still much. Have a, a little, still have a little fun with it, right? I still have fun. It's still fun. It's, it's great. The skills are just, they are ever changing and evolving, which is really interesting. And yeah, it's just really fun to figure things out and I'm still, you know, we're always still learning, right? We're trying to get better at what we do. So. I have a feeling she's being a little bit modest, though, Ross. <laughs> <laughs> Something tells me, based on all those uh, achievements, that she's I she's out there hustling, hustling, hustling people. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I had a few years that I, I kind of toned those down a little bit. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about Penn State. We're going to put you in the Lions Den, brought to you by our friends at Lions Pride and. Remember to visit lions-pride.com and join the Lions Pride loyalty program to start earning rewards that you can use on apparel and merchandise. So, Gail, we've really enjoyed hearing about your career and, again, just amazing accolades all throughout. Tell us how Penn State, your time at Penn State, prepared you for this super successful professional career that we've learned about. Yeah. Yeah. Penn State was probably like, and for many, most, not all, but it's a real transitional time of my life. And of course the education was, over, you know, excellent. And I, I, I really appreciated yeah, what it took to, to get through my courses and to balance my, my life. But I think it really gave me a lot of confidence and independence to move to the next stage of my life and begin what I was hoping to be a successful career. And once I, when I graduated, I was really set on moving to New York City and, you know, supporting myself, play my, play my sport, compete on, at the top level. And, and it was, I think, really the encouragement I've, I got from a lot of people around me at Penn State and my success while I was here. That really kind of got me through the start of it, and uh, I have to say, thinking back, I don't know if I'd do it again. But it was not it wasn't that easy to to play and to pe and to also earn a living to uh, support yourself. And I guess if I had knew, known more, I would have been a little bit less eager. But it, it was really a great experience for me to do it, and I do think my experience at Penn State and the people I met and being successful there had had really helped me early in my stages and and throughout my career. And this is the the toughest question of the podcast. Favorite Penn State memory? Ooh, oh gosh, there's so many. Like, of course, your basic ones with all your friends and your the football games, the social life. You really can't really pick out one that's particularly. But I, I have to say, I think my tennis experience with my team, and I had two coaches. Joan Nestler recruited me and retired. Hopefully, it wasn't me but right after my freshman year but Candace Royer who was class of 70, 72 I think maybe 71 but she took over and 
I learned so much from her and I, about about the game and also about myself. And she was really a big supporter. And so that that piece has been really it's really one of, the, one of the best parts of my career. I love my teammates and I, we're still close friends. And it's been it was amazing four years, all, all considered. And another tough question, not as tough as the last one, but if you could go back and visit with yourself as an 18 year old freshman starting at Penn State, what advice would you share? I think there's some good advice that was quite good, actually, but simple to take each day one at a time and uh, don't think too far ahead and don't get stuck in the past. And and I think I would add to it to take a step outside your your, your comfort zone, do something that you hadn't done, haven't done before and, and see if you can expand your horizons of opportunities while, while you're there. So I think I, I kind of got I had a lot, a lot going on between tennis squash and my, my, my classwork, but I think that would have been, yeah, an element that I could have also uh, taken advantage of. And particularly now with the opportunities at Penn State, different majors, the different, all the resources they have, it's hard to really fathom. Yeah. It's quite impressive what the university continues to do to support students and, and their growth. Certainly. Yeah. It's amazing. Now, When it's a non-squash player, I'll preface this question, and you find someone is considering Penn State, so you're not trying to recruit them to Princeton, what do you tell them? Why should they go to to Penn State? Okay, yeah. Again, it's really one of the best institutions in the world, educationally. And it had, again, I was still the same point about the variety of opportunities and coursework that you can you can take. I don't think there's anything that you can't really major in at Penn State. It seems like it's a really complete, inclusive academic programs across the board. Yeah, and I have to say, I think it's a huge school and you'll meet so many people. You're going to have the best four years of your life and just going, experiencing a football game. You have to go and see one of those to really believe the energy. I mean, you see it on TV and the other schools also have similar thing, but there's something special about Penn State and, and being a part of it. And uh, Gail, lastly, I know you, you've been with Princeton for, for quite some time, but how do you feel connected to Penn State? Is there Are there folks there in the university that you still keep in touch with, or is anything as far as alumni goes that you're involved to this day? Yeah, I do. I, I have a few friends I really cherish who are still at Penn, still in, in Penn State. And I mentioned one Lassie was one and she she let me work at her shop, as I mentioned. Um, so I always try to get back to see her once a year. And a nice uh, another person who was a big impact on my time is a guy named Dick Pensick. But he was formerly a, a lacrosse coach at Penn State. He was from Rutgers. But he was also in the phys ed program. He really, he was really fun. He loved it that I could be up on all these people he knows on the squash court. And he would just tell the stories that, yeah, oh, she played this guy and left-handed. And it's like, just, it's always, it's really fun. And he's still there. He's a collector of early 19th century items, I guess, uh, furniture and He's he did caught some taught some coach classes in the architect um, department after he retired from the athletic department and he's still still there he still e- emails me and yells at me and so it's really fun so when I go back I try to see him at least both of them at once or at different times but at least one of them each time I go back so it's really it it does actually really help me come go back and feel like I'm still connected to to Penn State College and. 
life as a Nittany Lion. Fantastic. This has been a, a great 30 minutes spending time with you and certainly congratulations. We, we listed so many accomplishments. There's so many more that we could have listed, as I mentioned, but also what really shines through is your ability to connect with athletes, collegiate athletes, student athletes, and really kind of mold them not only into players, elite players, but also into great human beings. And I think that certainly, as we think about your legacy, to spend 28 years at Princeton <laughs> and other universities along the way, certainly you've left your mark, not only on the university and the sport, but on people as well. So congratulations on all of that. Congratulations again on the upcoming Hall of Fame induction as well. Oh, thank you so much, Jared and Ross. It's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, I love Penn State and I love my time there. And it's always fun talking to other Penn Staters. So thank you. Fantastic. And we always end with, we are Penn State. Lion Legacy is a Baruta production. If you enjoy this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.